You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you've got your Bible, go to John chapter 7. We're taking the better part of a year and just going through John's gospel. This was Jesus' uh, nearest and dearest best friend. While he was on the earth, he gives us some unique insights that you won't learn anywhere else in the history of the world about Jesus. And the storyline is this, that... We rebelled against God. We separated ourselves from God. We did not want a relationship with God. But God is so good that he sent Jesus, the Son of God, to the earth on a rescue mission to seek us, to save us, to serve us, to invite us into relationship with him. And so as we're seeing, Jesus is a teacher. He does a lot of teaching and training and talking. And what's fascinating is hardly anybody's listening. How many of you are parents and you've got kids like this? You're, you're, you're trying to help them and they're just not paying attention. And, and sometimes, um, sometimes it's very fascinating to read the scriptures and to just pull back and to just consider the obvious for a moment. God comes to the earth. That's quite an inconvenience. That's, that's a really great thing that God did for us. And then God walks around in the desert, in the heat of the day, in the cool of the night, and he sits down and stands up, and in various contexts, he teaches people, and they don't listen. Some people come, and they ignore him. I hope you wouldn't ignore the Lord Jesus. Some people come to criticize him. They're waiting for him to say something that they disagree with, so that then they can discredit him, as if they disagree with him, he's wrong. That's just a, that's a tremendous presumption. Oh, I disagree with Jesus. He must be wrong. Just rethink all of that, just so you know. Uh, some people show up and they, they want to interrogate him. They just fire off questions and they want to shift the narrative and they want to control the storyline. And, and still others want to use it as an opportunity to build their own platform by sort of fighting with him and turning themselves into someone of significance. Why do I tell you this? Because... Faith comes by hearing. Hearing. If you're not listening, you're not growing. If you're not listening, you're not growing. If you're not listening, you're not growing. Uh, We're going to take a whole year-ish and go through John's gospel. And my goal is walk through it carefully and slowly to get you to learn to listen to God and to listen to God through God's word. And it is kind of heartbreaking and kind of stunning that, that God comes and, and people aren't listening. And it just, it just goes to show that some things never change. Today, the world is filled with people who are speaking and who's listening. Honestly, it seems like no one is listening. We live in an age because of technology. There is more communication more information than at any time in the history of the world. And it doesn't seem like anyone is listening. It's, it's, it's amazing. I've got a degree in speech from one of the top five programs in the country. That's my bachelor's degree. You cannot get a bachelor's degree in listening. <sighs> not interesting. You get a bachelor's degree in speaking, but not in listening. I think God gave us two ears and one mouth because we need to be listening more and speaking less. And it is amazing to me that you can't get a minor in listening. There's a lot of books written on how to speak. There's not a lot of books written on how to listen. God wants to speak to you today. We're here not just to hear a word about God, but to hear a word from God. And I love you and I've been praying for you and it's an honor to teach you God's word. And I want you as we open God's word to be listening and asking and inviting God, God, what do you have to say to me? Lord, my ears are open, my heart is open, my life is open. And we start with those who tragically and sadly are not listening in John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 13. And here we learn that Jesus comes with controversy. How many of you know Jesus still comes with controversy? Have you noticed that? He's still controversial. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, those are religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. So the context is this. Jesus is loving. 
and people are hating. Jesus is healing and people are plotting his murder. They're going to kill the healer. Okay? And the, the, the context, the season of year, it was the Jews' feast of booths. This was a holiday for them. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, they were enslaved to a cruel taskmaster named Pharaoh. When God delivered them, they wandered for an extended period of time around the wilderness, sojourning, traveling toward their homeland. So they would sleep in tents. They called them booths. We call them tents. This is camping. This is Hebrew camping. How many of you like camping? Okay, we'll pray for you. I don't understand. You're going to see these people are very grumpy. I would submit to you it may be because they're camping. That may be why they're very grumpy people. And, uh, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why I, I don't camp. First of all, my whole goal, the reason I get up every day and go to work is so that I don't sleep outside on the ground. That, that's that pretty much... Every decision in my adult life is to avoid that destination. I, I have never seen a, a movie where a guy in a mask with a chainsaw shows up at a bed and breakfast. It always happens at a tent. And so Grace and I, we prayed about it. We stay in bed and breakfast. That's what we do. And I think if you're a bear, a person in a sleeping bag just looks like a taco. So all of that is just, you know, it's not necessary. And I... I was reading a couple of theologians on this, uh, Dave Barry and uh, Jim Gaffigan. And uh, the noteworthy theologian Dave Barry said, camping is nature's way of promoting the hotel business. And Jim Gaffigan says, uh, my wife says camping is a tradition in my family. He says it was a tradition in everyone's family until we invented the home. Um, And so... So these people are camping, okay? This is, and, and the way this would work, this, there were certain festivals, feasts, and holidays, just like we've got holidays. Everybody gets the week off, weekend off, you get away. They would work really hard during the harvest season. You're looking at people that are agrarian, they're working the land. Once the harvest is done, you're exhausted, right? It's kind of that time of year right now, right? How many of you, it's near the end of the school year, right? It's, you're tired, you're working, you're kind of done. We're sort of leaning into summer break. That's what that season was. They would work very hard through the harvest season and then finally get a break. And there was the Feast of Booths and they'd all go camping and they'd sleep in tents to remember the time that their ancestors slept, slept in tents. So this is like their, their 4th of July. That's, that's the context of what is happening. So his brothers, these are Jesus' biological brothers, half-brothers, half-brothers. How many of you were raised Catholic? Have you raised Catholic? Okay, welcome to our Mass. My name is Father Mark. We'll have the sacraments in a moment. Good to have you. Okay, now, that being said, the way that it works in the Catholic Church, of which I was born into and an altar boy, when I was little, I was told that Mary was what we call Semper Virgo, ever virgin her entire life. Ever virgin her entire life, that that even after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph never consummated their relationship. The Bible teaches, conversely, that after Jesus was born, she was a virgin up until Jesus' birth. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mom and dad, they consummated their covenant relationship, and they went on to have other kids, boys and girls. So Jesus had brothers and sisters. We could even say half-brothers and half-sisters because he didn't have an earthly father. They did. So this is, to some degree, kind of a little bit like a blended family. These are his half-brothers. That being said, he also has sisters. And so what happens, they come to him. His brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. His brothers are mocking him a bit. They're making fun of him. They're maligning him. They don't really believe in him, and instead they are prodding him. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What the brothers are saying is, we keep saying you're God and you do all these supernatural things. Stop doing it in the small little rural country towns. Go to the big city of Jerusalem, unveil yourself, show everybody who you are. Some of you have family like that. You tell them what your destiny is, what your hopes and dreams and visions are, and they sort of just mock you and make fun of you and don't really support you. And I'm not making it up for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are 
evil. You go up to the feast, you go on ahead, you go on to the holiday, you go with all your friends. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus says, you go now, travel together, big holiday, everybody, you know, jump on the 17, go up the flag and I'll see you later. Story continues. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. He waited for everybody to make the journey. They're there. The holiday has started. He comes secretly, quietly, privately, because there is a plot to murder him. Murder him. The Jews, or religious leaders, were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, He's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. For the fear of the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. A couple of things. Number one, Jesus is opposed to both sinful rebellion and self-righteous religion. Jesus is opposed to both sinful rebellion and self-righteous religion. Earlier in the book, he dealt with a woman in Samaria at a well, and she had sinful rebellion She had been with a lot of men. Her life was very sexually and spiritually confused. Jesus called her to repent of her sinful rebellion, and she did. In this narrative, Jesus is not dealing with sinful rebellion. He's dealing with self-righteous religion. People that are judgmental, people that are arrogant, people that are holier than thou. They're very smug, non-empathetic, and very judgmental. That's what we mean when we use the word in the pejorative sense of being religious. There is something that Jesus' brother James called pure and undefiled religion that is to care for widows, orphans, and those in need. What I'm talking about here is to quote the old punk man, bad religion. That's what we're talking about. Bad religion is where God is not really active and involved because we don't really need him because we are the good people who have everything nailed down by our own works. That's the religious people. Now, the reason I say this, okay, how many, how many, how many of you are more religious, self-righteous? I'm going to be honest. We're in church, okay? One honest man raised his hand, okay? The rest of you are in denial, but welcome. You're in the journey. I would ask those of you who are rebellious to raise your hand, but you won't. And so, um, so I won't do that. What we tend to see then in the church and in the culture is the fight between the sinful, rebellious, and the self-righteous religious. You guys just sin, disobey God, you don't care about the Bible, and then their response would be, you're all holier than thou, self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant, non-compassionate, and unloving. Okay? And Jesus comes and he invites people to repent of their sinful rebellion and their self-righteous religion. Okay? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, I don't want to be religious. We don't want you to be religious. We want you to be redeemed. We want you to be redeemed through a relationship with Jesus where he makes you holy and that makes you humble. Okay? And so here, these are the religious people fighting and arguing with Jesus. Why do I say this? Some churches will preach against sin and they get a bunch of religious people. Other, people, other churches will preach against religion and they get a bunch of rebellious and sinful people. The key is to be with Jesus. The key is to be like Jesus. The key is to be for Jesus. Okay? And here it is the religious people who are opposed to Jesus. And I want you to make note of that. Number two, I want to give you some hope for your family. How many of you, your mom and dad don't know the Lord? How many of you, your kids don't know the Lord? How many of you, your grandkids don't know the Lord. I know this burdens some of our older saints. How many of you, your spouse doesn't know Jesus? People in your family don't love the Lord. This can be very burdensome because you love your family. And the most important person in your life is Jesus, if you're a Christian. And Jesus has helped you with everything. And you want everyone in your family to meet him so that they could experience all the blessings and benefits that come through that relationship with Jesus. Jesus' own family didn't believe in him. Okay, So let me say this. Sometimes we can say and do things that push family members away. And if you've done that, we need to go to those family members and say, you know what, the way I said this or handled that was not good. I ask your forgiveness. I could and should, and in the future I would do it differently. 
But sometimes you didn't really fail. They just don't believe. These are Jesus' brothers. They shared a bunk bed with Jesus. I mean, that's amazing. They grew up with Jesus. They knew he was a good kid. Amen? I mean, if you're Jesus, some of you are like, it'd be so cool to be Jesus' brother. Maybe not. Maybe not, right? Because every time something happened, mom would be like, well, I know it wasn't Jesus' fault. So, you know, so, you know, here, wear this, what would Jesus do bracelet? And then next time, think about that. Okay, so they, they grow up with Jesus. They know Jesus, but they don't love Jesus. And some of you, you, you did love Jesus and you raised your kids or your grandkids to love Jesus. But like Jesus' brothers, they got so familiar with them, they missed him. Okay. Does, does this continue? Do Jesus' brothers, does Jesus' family eventually come to believe in him? They do. So after he dies and after he rises... Jesus' mother Mary is listed among the members of the early church in a history book of the New Testament called Acts. Mary worships her son as her savior. That's amazing. Jesus' own brothers worship him as God. To me, this is a very strong case that the Bible is true and Jesus is God. I have two brothers and the odds of them starting a religion for me are not good. I have, I have a better chance of becoming pregnant than a religion, okay? The odds are not good because my brothers know exactly who I am, right? I mean, they, they, they've been in counseling to deal with the wedgies and they're recovering, okay? So, so Jesus' own brothers to go from devout religious Jewish people to worshiping their brother as God, when they didn't believe in his claims during his life, they didn't believe until after his resurrection from death. They go on to write two books of the Bible bearing their name, James and Jude. Furthermore, they are called pillars in the early church. In Galatians, I think it's 2.9. Um, furthermore, uh, one of his brothers has two nicknames, James the Just, because he has such outstanding character in church history. And another name for him outside of the Bible is Camel Knees, because this guy spent so much time praying to his brother who went to heaven that literally you could see it on his knees. Now, what happens is they go from disbelieving in Jesus to worshiping Jesus to suffering for Jesus to being murdered for Jesus. So they come to James, and it's outside of the Bible, but it's in church history. They said, denounce, renounce your brother. He said, I saw my brother beat death. You can't scare me. Kill me. I'll tell my brother you said hi. And what happens then is after he dies, there is a leadership vacuum. Jesus died, rose, went to heaven. His brothers, James and Jude, filled the leadership vacuum. They murdered James. And this is what one archaeologist, and if his report is correct, it is insightful. He says, when James is murdered, it is Simon who takes over leadership in the movement. Simon is a name for one of Jesus' brothers in the Bible. Jesus is God. His brothers, after he returns to heaven, fill the leadership void and worship him as God. They murder one brother and another brother named Simon, according to history, not scripture, but history, steps forward to fill that gap and to be that leader. I can't give you a promise for your family, but I want to give you hope for your family. And I want you to know that God has really been wonderful to me in this way. And I I give it as a gift of hope for, for you. If you don't have faith for your family, borrow my faith. Okay, when I first became a Christian, many in my family did not know and love Jesus. And this burdened me. And over the years, God has done a wonderful thing. My mom and dad love the Lord Jesus. It's amazing. I got to baptize my own dad in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And uh, we turned around and baptized Calvin. Now there's three generations of us committed to Jesus openly and publicly. I have seen a mini revival among our extended family. We were this close to being godly, this close, you know? And then many of us met Jesus. And now I have many relatives who love Jesus. I have many relatives that are pastors and missionaries. God's done a wonderful thing in our immediate and extended family. It's one of the great joys 
of my life. And one of the great reliefs that our family will be part of the eternal homecoming of the family of God. And I know some of you come here today and you would have burdens for your family. And I would submit to you that there is hope for them. So don't stop praying for them. Don't stop loving them. Don't stop pursuing them. And even if they don't know Jesus, it may not be your fault. Jesus' own brothers didn't know him. They knew him, but they didn't know him. But eventually they did. That's the hope for you. Uh, Number three, um, if you are walking a hard path and you're not alone, you're more blessed than Jesus. I was thinking about it. Um, I I had a great week until yesterday. I either have the stomach flu or um, food poisoning right now. So if I run off, um, it's not personal. I mean, it is, but it's not personal against you. It's just personal with me. Underneath this vest right now, there is a washing machine on spin cycle. I think I I lost a few pounds last night in liquid. I was up all night. I really didn't sleep. And some of you are like, he's still fat. I know. So, um, you know, so um, pray for me. My resurrection body, though, I will be lean, tall, with amazing bangs. Wait till you see me then. It's going to be amazing. My bangs went home to be with the Lord before me, and we're waiting for that great reunion. Um, and so, and I don't, I don't understand that. I could braid my feet and I have no bangs. I don't understand. It just, just shows you something's gone wrong in the world. Sin has affected everything. Um, and so, what was I talking about? Um, oh, I'm not feeling good. Okay, so I was thinking about, I'm not, I'm really not, I'm really not feeling good. But I, after this, I get to go home because I have a home. I'm not camping. And... Uh, Did Jesus have a home to go to? No. I get to go home to my wife and best friend, Grace. Did Jesus have a wife to go home to? No. I get to go home to my kids, who I really love, and they're life-giving, and I enjoy them, and I find a ton of energy and satisfaction being with my family. Jesus didn't have kids. Some of you like, he had disciples. Let me just say that they were the apple dumpling gang, okay? They They were not the most helpful. And one of them he already told us was a devil. So you're like, well, that's, hey, I got a buddy and, and he's a devil. Yeah, he's not super helpful, you know. So Jesus has got a lonely path. And is his family there for, that, for him? No. His brothers are like, ah, you say you're God. That's crazy. Go to Jerusalem. We're trying to talk you out of it, but you're not listening. We all know you're crazy. Lonely. Some of you understand that. The path is lonely. If you have someone to walk with, you're more blessed than Jesus. I want you to be grateful for your spouse, grateful for your friends, grateful for your family. Anybody that is walking with you is a tremendous blessing. I have a lot of people to be grateful for. And I just am so grateful, and I want to publicly honor my, my immediate and extended family, including my folks, that in the hardest seasons of my life, my family was there for me. Jesus didn't have that. Some of you don't have that. Jesus understands you. And let me tell you this. If no one is walking with you, Jesus is walking with you. And he understands what it's like to walk alone. So he's willing to walk with you. So you don't have to walk alone. Number four, knowing God's will is only half of it. Knowing God's timing is the other half. Jesus' brothers come to him and they say, go up to Jerusalem. And he's like, you know what? My time has not yet come. He knew what the Father's will was for him. What was the Father's will for Jesus? That he would go to the cross and die as a substitute in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. And that he would rise to conquer death and forgive sin and give eternal life. He knew exactly what his mission was. He also knew it wasn't time. It's amazing to me the patience of Jesus He is going to love people. He is going to serve people. He is going to teach people who are not listening. They're not loving. They're not learning. He's going to die for them so that they could be forgiven and changed. And he is willing to endure more abuse from them because it is not his appointed time to die for them. Right. This, is, this is where I know, I know that I know 
that there's nobody like Jesus. And that's why the Bible is filled with good news. Good news. Because Jesus is so good. Let me say this to you. One of the great mistakes you can make is knowing God's will and not obeying God's timing. The Bible says elsewhere that Jesus came in the, quote, fullness of time. He came at the right time. He came at the appointed time. The Bible actually uses that language. At the appointed time, something happened. Some of the greatest regrets, mistakes, errors that I have made in my life are when I knew God's will, but I didn't wait for God's timing. Impatient, young, aggressive. Some of you are alphas. Some of you are just people who, once you know something, you have to get it done. You're a doer. Some of you are not patient. How many of you are like me? You really struggle with patience? Right? I do. I, I sort of yell at the microwave. I do. I'm that guy. I'm like, hey, hustle it up, microwave. We got things to do. You know, I'm that guy. I'm the guy in traffic. Um, I just love living in Arizona because there is no speed limit. And, uh, <laughs> and that's amazing. And so, you know, some of you, you know God's will, but the trouble you get into, it's not God's time. Right? Relationally, the Bible says, do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. You meet somebody, you're like, I think it's God's will for me to be with them. And you get ahead of God's timing. You go to do something in business, you're like, I think this is God's will for my career, but I get ahead of God's timing. We do this frequently, and it ends painfully. Not only knowing God's will, but God's timing. That's crucial and key. Um, Next sort of observation from this section. um, If you stand with Jesus, expect to suffer with Jesus. Jesus is saying there is the world... There is the world, and he said the world's works are evil. We need to retain that language. It's not just an alternative. It's an evil. And on the other side, there is the kingdom of God. So here comes Jesus, the king, bringing the kingdom, and he is here to save people in the world, which is evil. And there's this clear demarcation that you're either with the world or with Jesus. And what Jesus says to his brothers at that moment is, you're not going to suffer because the world isn't going to punish you. You're on their team. This had to be very painful for Jesus to articulate. These are your little brothers. You love them. You're saying, you know what? They're opposing, hating, harming, harassing, plotting to murder me. They're not doing that to you because you're on the wrong side of the fight. You're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of the war. The world won't shoot you because you have aligned yourself with the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. And let me tell you this, friend. If you, in faith, cross over that line and belong to the Lord Jesus, you will stand with Jesus and you will suffer with Jesus. That is why many do not, in this section, cross that line. They are afraid to do so. This is where our faith cannot just be a private thing, Jesus in our heart, but it's also a public thing, Jesus is Lord over all. And it is calling people to turn from evil and to turn to Jesus, to go from the world to the kingdom, to go from the commitments that they have to the Christ who is over all. Last one from this section. You are either driven by fear of man or fear of God. Here's how it says it. For fear, no one spoke openly. Fear. Number one command in the Bible, fear not, because it is the most consistent human struggle. We're fearful. Fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man is a trap or a snare. What this is here, this is fear of man. Fear of man is this. You are going to criticize me. I don't like to be criticized. You are going to have conflict with me. I don't do conflict. You are going to punish me. I don't want to pay a price or suffer. You are going to make me pay. I don't want to have to pay. You're going to hurt me. You're going to oppose me. You're going to harass me. You're going to reject me. So you tell me what you want. I will do what you tell me to do so that you don't make my life hell on earth. 
This is a false religion. The person or people are now God. And you don't want to go to hell. So you worship them so that they don't punish you and make your life hell. This can be your overbearing, domineering dad. This can be your threatening boss. Uh, This can be your controlling boyfriend. This can be the people who take advantage of you because they know you're a people pleaser, which is just our way of saying fear of man. The only way to get rid of fear of man is fear of the Lord. It says in Proverbs 1 uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. If you live out of fear of man, you will make very foolish decisions. How many of you you know exactly what I'm talking about? I was scared, so I did something that I wouldn't be hurt, and the decision I made hurt me worse. It caused more pain. The fear of the Lord is the cure for the fear of man. Jesus here is operating out of the fear of the Lord. I worship the Father. I do what the Father says. He's living out of fear of the Lord. Others are living fear of man. And what fear of man does, it gets you to stop talking about Jesus. Does this still occur in our culture? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so what it takes is someone to start what I will call contagious courage. Contagious courage is you're at work and they're like, those stupid Christians, hey, hey, my, my minority group feels that was hate speech. Speaking on behalf of us stupid Christians. Okay? You know, you know, Christians are ruining the world. Well, hey, actually, Christ made the world. So let's, let's talk about this. And he's coming again to remake the world. Okay? That contagious courage is one person who says... I am not going to live by fear of man. I will live by fear of God. And I may suffer as Jesus suffered. But one day when I see Jesus, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Until then, I may never hear that. You live in a culture that is evil and marked by the world. And the goal is to bully you, to harass you, to push you, to threaten you, to cajole you that you would worship someone or something other than Jesus and that you would stay silent and shut up about Jesus. And as a result, you will hurt yourself. You will destroy your joy and you cannot live in the fear of God and the fear of man. And so you have to pick whom you fear. Me fear. So Jesus has increased the temperature in the room. He has elevated the conflict with the religious leaders. He is not scared. He is not cowardly. He is foot forward. He is not flinching. He is teaching, and tragically, they are not listening. So in the next section, the conflict continues. Jesus comes with authority. I want you to see this too. Some of you do everything you can to avoid conflict. Jesus didn't. Does he look for conflict? Does he get up in the morning and say, I need bacon, eggs, and conflict. That's what I need to start my day. No. But as conflict comes, he's willing to have conflict. Because here's the deal. If you love people, you're willing to have conflict with them so that you can have relationship with them. Okay? About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching, right? There's a bounty on his head. There are wanted posters for Jesus all over the temple. And he now goes public. He doesn't hold a quiet Bible study in the corner behind a locked door for the three people who already agree with him. He he goes open public. Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled. These are the religious leaders 
saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Where did he get this? He didn't go to college. He didn't go to our school. He didn't pass our tests. He didn't study under our rabbis. He didn't do what he's supposed to do to be a teacher. But when he teaches, we hear God say this. The goal is always to stop the teaching of God's word. The goal is all, because they can smear Jesus, they can slander Jesus. But once Jesus speaks, everybody's like, well, that's not what I was expecting. I heard about this guy. Now I heard this guy. And what I heard about this guy is different than what I hear from this guy. They marveled saying, how does this man have this much learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine. Here's what he's saying. I echo. I echo. The Father speaks and I echo what he says. The Holy Spirit speaks and I echo what he says. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority. Speaking on your own authority is bringing a word about God. Speaking on God's authority is bringing a word from God. There's a big difference. Okay? Speaking a word about God is I think, or in my opinion, or from my perspective, or, you know, I read 27 people and 13 say this and 14 say that. A word from God is, thus saith the Lord, this is what the word of God and the God of the word says. There's an authority there that commands and demands obedience and action. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He said, you know, since we're judging people, you see, here's what religious people do. I judge you, I don't judge me, and you don't judge me. Right? Some of you are married to this person. There's a little healing there. Right there, let's give you a little healing moment. Right? Let's give him an elbow. Right? Religion is, I judge you, I don't judge me, and you don't judge me. It's a God complex. It's a God complex. Jesus already told us in John 5, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the judge. And what they are doing, they are judging Jesus. Jesus flips it around and says, actually, there's some laws in Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, which means book of five parts. They have 613 laws. And Jesus is like, there's no way you keep all of those. 613? Does Jesus keep all of the laws? Yes. And they judge him as being guilty. Did they keep all the laws? No. They judge themselves as being not guilty. So what Jesus is talking about here is two kinds of teachers. And I would ask you to pray for me. I love what I do. I want to be a good Bible teacher. And this is a warning for all of us who are given the honor of teaching. That's where the Bible says not many of you should presume to be teachers because you'd be judged more strictly or harshly. It's important that when we teach, we teach the word of God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, the Apostle Paul says that there are basically two kinds of teachers, um, knowledge teachers and love teachers. He says that knowledge, what? Puffs up. I am so smart. And if you listen to me, you can be smart. And then we'll all be smarter than those stupid people. And we can criticize them because they're not smart like we are. Knowledge all by itself puffs up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, love what? Builds up. Builds up. See, teaching that is only knowledge, and it doesn't include love, what it results in is thinking that information equals transformation. It's information in the context of loving relationship that equals transformation. So knowledge teaching is what the religious leaders had. They would quote the scholars, because their authority came from the scholars, their authority didn't come from the spirit. So the authority would be, I went to this school, I passed these tests, I read these books, I can quote these scholars and I can argue and debate. 
Therefore, my authority is from the scholars. I am very smart. Listen to me. We'll be the smart, good people. We'll be critics of all the stupid, bad people. Love builds up. Love derives its authority not from the scholars, but from the Spirit. Love ultimately causes us to realize, I'm not great, you're not great, we're not great, God is great. Glory be to God. He loves the unlovable. He pursues the unpursued. He forgives the unthinkable. He does the imaginable. Glory be to God. God is so great. God is so good. And what that results in is humility and a desire to love people and to invite them into relationship saying, I'm not smarter than you. I'm not better than you. I just met Jesus. He's amazing. He wants to help you too. Let me be your friend and introduce you to my best friend who's changed my whole life. That's love builds up teaching. And so I'll give you a, a little example. Um, I get to teach sometimes in other places and it's pretty fun. One place I went to is really, I mean, I've been to some weird places, but one place I went to, you could find out a lot about people from the questions that they ask. I literally taught at a place and I had a line of guys single white guys so you know they're going to be bad questions single white guys come up to me and their questions were not questions they were closed questions arguments to see how smart I was and I went to public school I I don't I'm not you know I'm not pretending I'm a valedictorian you know Um, so one kid came up he literally asked he said do you believe in superlapsarianism infralapsarianism or sublapsarianism Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Don't worry about it. Anytime you get to Arianism, it's a big word, move right along. Okay, this other guy, and it can be an important theological concept, but even the whole point was, I'm very smart. Do you know what these words mean? Are you smart? This other guy comes up, he said, what's your position on pedo-communion, which is infant communion? I was like, they'll choke. That's my position. (laughs) I don't think giving wine to a newborn is ideal if you like them. Um, But it was just questions like that. Go to another place and teach and people come up and they're like, okay, um, I have a hard time forgiving people who have sinned against me. I want to get over that so I can love them. How do you do that? That's a good question. You know, I just became a Christian. I need to read the Bible. Where do you start? I had one guy recently asked me, he was living with his girlfriend. And no, you shouldn't do that. Um, but I said, yeah, are you Christian? He's like, yeah. I said, well, you can't be living and sleeping with your girlfriend. He's like, okay. Uh, he's like, so in Christianity, like, do you obey all at once or can you ease into it? <laughs> right? <laughs> right, you know? Yeah. See, that, that's an honest question, right? And he's not pretending like, oh, I'm very smart. He's like, uh, I'm very bad. Right? And so, uh, honest question. Here's what I'm not against. Am I against scholarship? No, 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 no. no. I have a master's degree and basically Bible. I have 5,000 books at my house because I love my books and I don't want them far. I got tens of thousands of books on my laptop. I'm a nerd. I read the footnotes. I can argue, debate scholars and theologians a little bit. But really, the point of teaching is not to puff people up, but to build people up. Yeah. Because you know what happens? People who are puffed up, they beat up other people. People who are built up, they build up. Other people. We want to not be people up, we want to build people up. That's the point of God's Word. I'll give you a story from college. I got saved in college, 19 year old, new Christian, went to the Bible study for the college kids. The first thing I realized, none of us knows anything. That's the first thing I realized. Right? We're all saved just very recently. I mean, there's still smoke coming off of half of us in the Bible study. Like, we just joined the team. And we open the Bible, we're like, what do you think that means? We're like, I don't know. We've got to find somebody who, you know, their Bible's been opened before today. You know, figure out what we're doing here. So I found out there was this older study of men 
Um, and they, uh, some of them were professors at the university. Some of them were farmers. They met early in the morning because they had jobs. Our college Bible study met in the afternoon because we didn't have jobs. But they, the men got up early. So I go to the Bible study. And, and there were scholars and there were real simple folks there. And they did love Jesus. And there was one old guy, overalls, John Deere hat, boots. He had a Bible that looked like it had been on the ark with Noah. I mean, this thing had been around a while and it had taken a beating. Let me just say this. If you're a young guy and you see an old guy with a beat up Bible, get to know him. Okay. Get to know him. This guy had a beat up old Bible, all marked up, tattered, highlighted, all this stuff. We're having our discussions in the men's Bible study. And I didn't say anything because I knew I didn't know anything. And then near the end, this older guy didn't hardly say anything the whole study. And finally they looked at him. They're like, well, what do you think? And he just kind of got quiet and looked and he just started talking. And I thought, why didn't we start with this guy? <laughs> this guy, this guy doesn't just know about God. He knows God. Okay. This is the difference between I read someone's profile on social media and I have a relationship with him. There's a big difference. You can know about God and not really know God. And he started talking, and he taught as one, he spoke as one that had authority. Uh, they say this of Jesus in Matthew 7, I think it's 29. They said, he, the people were shocked by Jesus because he didn't teach as the other religious leaders. He taught as one that had authority. When he spoke, you're like, that was a word from God. God spoke to me, and I need to obey that. When this guy spoke, literally, he was humble, he was gracious. But when he spoke, I was like, this man has insight that only comes from time with the Lord. And I don't care if you're formally educated or not educated. I'm talking about time in the word of God, time in the presence of God with the spirit of God. Okay. So I asked him, I was like, sir, how did you figure this out? He was a farmer. He was a wheat farmer. He said, well, you know, wheat farmer, not on the combine and driving the truck all the time. And uh, this was a long time ago. Let me date myself non-romantically. He said, uh, he said uh, I got a bunch of cassette tapes. And he said, I got the whole Bible on cassette. When I'm in the truck or I'm on the tractor or the combine, I put it in and I listen to the word of God. And if something strikes me, I hit pause and then I talk to the Lord about it, maybe sing a song, ask him some questions, think about it. Then I hit play, and I've been doing that my whole life. Well, there you go. Sir, did you go to college? No, I did not. But he spent time with Jesus. In the early church, there was a criticism of the Christian leaders, and it was, these men are uneducated. How do they know these things? Because they spent time with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. God can use your IQ, but he can use you even if you don't have a high IQ. Because wisdom is different than knowledge. Okay? Because wisdom knows what to do, not just what to think. And Jesus comes and teaches, and the whole fight is... Get Jesus out of the pulpit. Don't let him teach. Slander him. Say horrible things. Kill him. If he teaches, everybody's going to hear him and they're going to like it. Here's what I want you to do, my friend. I want you to spend more time in God's word. Some of you have read a lot of books about Jesus. Read the book where Jesus speaks for himself. Some of you have read all kinds of stuff about religions and philosophies. Spend some time in the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful, living, and active. God's Word goes forth. It accomplishes God's will, and it unleashes God's power in your life. It will change your mind. It will satisfy your longings. It will reveal your shortcomings, follies, and sin. And this is not just the book that you study. This is the book that studies you. Okay? And when Jesus teaches, the people are like, we heard a lot of teachers. We never heard a guy like this. And they still don't listen. Next section. The crowd answered, you have a, a demon. Is that true? Some of you are like, I'm not even a Christian. I don't think he has a demon. He does not have a demon. You have a demon. 
Aren't you glad Jesus didn't live in our age? Can you imagine social media today with Jesus? Oh. Uh, tonight, we, uh, we have an eyewitness who verifies that uh, Jesus is demon-possessed. Yeah, he's demon-possessed. And then that's trending. Jesus gets arrested. They cuff him. They're stuffing him in the back of the car. Can you imagine that photo on social media? Thug Jesus. Right? Who is seeking to kill you? They, when they ask Jesus questions, they ask him closed, not open questions. Open questions are to relate. Closed questions are to ruin. Jesus answered them, I did one work. And you all marvel at it. What was the work? Some of you have been here for a while. What was the work? Way back, John's gospel, there was a guy, 30 some years, invalid, crippled, handicapped, can't get up. His whole life is shattered. Jesus shows up, asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Dude doesn't even answer the question. Jesus heals him. The religious leaders, fear of man, come to the man who was healed. Who healed you? He rats out Jesus. I don't know. I was just sitting there on the mat. Next thing I know, Jewish guy, Shazam, I'm walking around. Go find him. I'm a victim. Right? So he sends the religious leader. It's all in the Greek. He sends the religious leaders to go get Jesus. And it says earlier in John that this began their persecution of Jesus. They're trying to kill the healer. And Jesus is like, is this because I healed? Is it, is it because he healed or the day that he healed that they had a problem with him? The day, what day did he heal? The Sabbath, Saturday. We do healings on Sundays and Fridays. On Saturdays, we only plot the murder of people who do healings on Saturdays. How is plotting the murder of a guy who healed better than healing? Now the conversation takes a weird turn. Moses gave you circumcision. How many of you didn't see that coming? (laughs) Circumcision? Some of you are like, are we going to talk about this? Okay. Uh, It's a weird pivot, amen? You're like... You're trying to kill me. Well, let's talk about circumcision. Most of the guys are like, let's talk about anything else. Um, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the father. Circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham, and it is the covenant sign for the men in covenant with God. And you circumcise a man on what day? The Sabbath. Jesus is like, hey, since we're judging people, let me ask you a question. You circumcise on the Sabbath. According to the Old Testament law, when a Hebrew boy was born, on what day was he to be circumcised? Eighth day. Jesus is like, so if a boy is born, and then the eighth day falls on a Saturday, and he's supposed to be circumcised, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but what do you guys do? Circumcising. What Jesus is saying is, how come me healing a guy is a bad thing, and you circumcising a little boy is a good thing? Here's here's how it works. Religion takes God's laws and adds to them in ways that even they do not obey. God's law was, take a Sabbath day. Here's how Jesus says it elsewhere. He says, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. What he's saying is, the Sabbath is not something that rules over you to ruin your life. The Sabbath is a gift that God gives to enhance and bless your life, to enjoy the people and provisions that God has given. They made the Sabbath more important than people. You know what? People matter. God did say no work on the Sabbath. God did not say that healing counted as a work on the Sabbath. That was their rule, not God's rule. Here's what you need to know. Just because God makes rules doesn't mean you get to do the same. 
Okay? God has laws. You and I, we can exercise our authority in our home or our family or business. But we need to be careful saying, I am going to take God's laws and add my laws and put them together as my laws and God's laws hold equal authority. That was their problem. And Jesus shows them the folly. And he says, well, you guys circumcise on the Sabbath. I heal on the Sabbath. How is my work bad, your work good? And how is you murdering me the godly thing to do since I'm God? A couple of things. Number one, you can never learn if you're only and always the teacher. Every time these guys come to Jesus, they don't ask open questions. Hey, Jesus, explain that. Jesus, we got a question. Uh, Jesus, we were reading the laws of Moses and we're a little confused. Jesus, you said something. We didn't fully understand it. Could you please explain that? They are never the student. They're always the teacher. Some of you, you, you always have to fill the air. You always have to tell others. You always have to be the one with the answer. Right? You can't learn anything if you're always the teacher and never the student. Jesus is there, and they won't let him be the teacher. Number two, listening is following. They're not listening to Jesus, so they're not following Jesus. To listen to Jesus is required if you're going to follow Jesus. Um, you know, up until yesterday when I got this stomach junk, I was having a great week. I have a great wife. I have a great job. I got a great family. I get to minister with great people. My soul was unsettled. I was frustrated. I was agitated. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It's because this week, I, uh, or in the recent weeks, life is full, but it's all good and growing. I didn't get enough time in silence and solitude to just shut up and listen and spend time with the Lord. My most public job is speaking. My most important job is listening. Okay? And my soul is unsettled if I don't get enough time for listening. For listening. And listening is a way of following. That's why Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they, they listen to me. Number three, we use words to either connect with someone or control someone. This is communication theory. Jesus has a conversation a few chapters previously with a woman in Samaria at a well. He talks with her. She talks with him. Uh, they connect and build a relationship where her sins are forgiven. And she loves Jesus and tells everybody about Jesus. It's an awesome story. His words and her words are used to connect. These religious leaders, they, they do exchange communication with Jesus, but the goal is not to connect with Jesus. The goal is to control Jesus. You men, listen to me. I love you, but let me just put my dad hat on for a minute. Some of your wives and children, they find you domineering, overbearing, high control. You're always the teacher. You're never the student. You're always right. You're never wrong. And you will manipulate the conversation so that your words are used to control the person in the conversation. And the way this often happens is with closed questions. Who's trying to kill you? That's a closed question. Do you use your words to connect with people or control people? If it's to connect with people, you'll have a relationship. If it's to control people, you will not have a relationship. Question. Do these people have a relationship with Jesus? No. Are they communicating with Jesus? Yes. How can you communicate and not have a relationship if the purpose and point of your communication is control and not connection? They're not building a friendship. They're attacking, they're maligning, they're controlling, they're controlling the narrative. They have closed questions. That's how they're operating. Um, number four, watch out for fads and trends about Jesus. There's always some new hook and some new book written by some new crook. That's just the way that it goes, right? That's your little hip hop point of the day, right? 
there's always some new hook and some new book written by some new crook about Jesus. Beware of the fads and the trends. Earlier, Jesus fed 5,000 plus the women and the children, and there was a massive political rising. They wanted to seize him and make him a king by force. And here they say, he's got a demon, we need to murder him. All right, stick with the word of God. It is timeless. That means it's always timely. God's word never gets old because it's eternal. Fads and trends come and go, but it's the word of God that endures forever. Number five, people often confuse the work of God and Satan. Here, Jesus heals a guy and they say he healed by the power of a demon. That is possible and you need to know that. The Bible says that Satan and demons will perform counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles with the express purpose of deceiving. In other false religions, there is demonic satanic power because Satan is willing to heal your body in exchange for your soul. He will alleviate a little bit of suffering to purchase for you an eternal suffering. And so sometimes people say, well, spirituality is good. No, no, no. Spirituality includes the Holy Spirit. And it includes demons. It includes God's angels and the fallen angels. Spirituality is good and bad. Just like people are good and bad, spirit beings are good and bad. So they look at the work of Jesus and they attribute his healing to a demon. They are attributing the work of God to that which is wrong and evil. Sometimes people also take the work of God, or I should say the work of Satan, and they will attribute it to God. Some of you, you think there's me and there's God. So everything that happens, it must be God. God, why do you do that? God, why did you hurt me? God, why did you make that happen? And Satan is over on stage left saying, this is working perfectly. I attack them. They think it's God. Now they hate God. It's a demonic plot and ploy. It's a demonic plot and ploy. Be careful that you know the work of God and the work of Satan and that you do not confuse the two. Number six, don't rush to judgment about Christ and Christian leaders. I mean, here they say that Jesus has a demon. And these are respectable religious leaders. These are people with degrees. These are people that are, you know, speaking at conferences and writing books. And they're saying horrible things about Jesus. So don't believe everything you hear about Christ or Christian leaders. Right? Instead, Jesus says, judge with the right judgment. Judge with the right judgment. So to judge with the right judgment is this. Who's the first person that you should judge? You. These people don't judge themselves. They're judging Jesus and everybody else. Before you judge anyone else, judge yourself. Let me tell you this. If you do this right, you won't even have time to judge anyone else. You'd be, you're like, I was going to judge you. I started judging myself. Oh, look at the time. It just, the whole day went away. <laughs> if you spend your time judging yourself, you won't have much time to judge anyone else. Judge yourself. And as you judge others, don't just judge by appearance, race, ethnicity, age, background, socioeconomic level, whatever the case might be. In 1 Samuel 16, there is a case study. There's a little boy. I'll just read it to you. The Lord said to Samuel, this little boy, do not look at his appearance at the height of his statue, for God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. The heart. They're like, God, you're going to use Samuel? He's just a little boy. God's like, you see a little boy. I see a little boy with a heart fully devoted to me. I don't need a man. I just need a fully devoted heart. And if that heart resides in a little boy, that's enough for me to work with. We're all guilty of this. Grace and I know somebody that when we first met, I kind of rushed to judgment and recently got to know them a little better. This verse in Samuel just convicted me of my own sin. I judged them too quickly. I thought I figured out who they were. Once they shared their story, I realized this person has been through trauma, trouble, and trial. 
this person has a very deep well with Jesus. This person has forgiven so many people for so much hurt. This person is not bitter. They love the Lord. They trust the Lord. They worship the Lord. They serve the Lord. They love the word of God. They have tremendous insight. I had to repent of my own erroneous judging. Don't judge someone by where they're at. Judge them by where they started and how far they've come. Some of you were born into godly families and given the word of God. And some people, they are breaking generations of folly, sin, rebellion, and evil. And they have made more progress than you, though they're not at the same place as you. It's because they had a longer journey. How's your heart? We're going to ask you to judge yourself. How's your heart? We see four conditions in closing. There are those who despised Jesus. They wanted to murder him. There are those who disowned Jesus. Thousands after he fed them walked away. We saw that a few weeks ago. Three, some disbelieved in him. That was his family. In addition to those who despised, disowned, and disbelieved, there were some who remained devoted to him. These are the disciples who walk with him. And they are walking by faith because they don't see what is next. And we're in the middle of the story. Let me say this. You don't see what's next and you're in the middle of the story. But I want you to know Jesus. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to trust Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to spend time with Jesus. I want you to open the Bible and hear from Jesus. And when you hear from Jesus, I want you to take the next step of obedience with Jesus. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to teach your word here at the Trinity Church. Um, Lord, thanks for helping me get through a day where um, I guess when we're weak, we're strong. And that your power is made perfect in weakness. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you came to the earth. And that you walked around to meet with people who didn't even want to listen. That you taught people who wanted to argue and fight and debate. That you went to the cross to die for people who wanted to kill you. And you let them kill you so that you could forgive them. Lord Jesus, it is a scandal how good you are, how patient you are. Lord, I pray for these dear people that right now, Lord, they would take a moment to listen. Faith comes by hearing. Put faith in these people. Lord, anything that you would speak to them through the scriptures today, let them listen. Let them have ears to hear minds to believe, hearts to receive the truth of God's word. Lord, let us cast aside for a moment all the disruptions and distractions and just be in your presence, to be refreshed in your presence. As we come forward for communion, let us remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that delivers the religious from their righteousness and the rebellious from their sin. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be in in this place with these dear people. Encourage them. Bring them life. Bring them hope. Bring them peace. Bring them faith as they hear the word of God and respond in faith. We ask for this grace in Jesus' good name. Amen.